So please pray with me. Spirit, you are welcome in this place. Father, we need you. Jesus, it is because of you that we are even able to be here. I thank you for this time. I thank you for each and every person here. I thank you for each and every person under the sound of my voice. Father God, here and afar, Jesus, I ask that you would have your way. I pray for receptive hearts. May we hear what it is that you have to say to us today. As I decrease, may you increase. In your holy and precious son, Jesus' name, amen. Again, for those that don't know me, my name is Falang Gangmuta. I am here. I've been part of the underground for about like eight years. I am married to that lovely man over there. Um, his name is Omar. And I am part of the Kindred family as well too. So shout out to y'all um, who are watching. I appreciate that as well too. And I am part of the underground staff. I am the coaching specialist as you heard before. So I kind of do a lot of things around here. Um, but I really do believe that God has a special word to give to us today when it comes down to First Peter. Uh, Jeremy kind of said it ahead of time, even um, Lucas alluded to it, that like we've been hearing a lot of hard words in First Peter. So if you've been feeling uncomfortable with most of the text, that's a First Peter, then you're not alone. However, it does mean something, and I want to press into that today. This text was a circulating letter going to churches all over Asia. The letter is speaking to a mixed group under the Roman Empire at the time. We've already heard that they were under Nero, one of the most notorious Roman empires, emperors. He burned Christians at the stake and used their burning bodies to light his garden. We must remember the reality of what was happening at this time. Hedonism was the dominant culture, Festivals to Roman gods, sex taking place at the temples with temple prostitutes. Think of it like an unending lit spring break at Cancun. Understanding these circumstances is imperative because if you were a Christian during this time, you were already being oppressed. You were second class. You barely had rights and are living in a time where what you were being told by Peter in this letter is completely contrary to the reality of everyday life. Sound familiar? Then on top of the whirlwind of the culture that you're living in, you're being told that in order to be as Christ, yes, you, you must suffer. If you're anything like me, you're probably giving the biggest side eye or are just plain confused and annoyed. I don't know about you, but if I'm already suffering because of cultural circumstances and unchanging, immutable characteristics about me, then being told to suffer some more, I have some questions. If you feel like this, then realize your uncomfortability is taking place because even as we espouse this text, 
we are reading from a privileged lens. See, if you are someone who is oppressed and marginalized, this text would read as a breath of fresh air to you a letter of encouragement, because you are more than likely at your wit's end from the suffering you're enduring and want some sort of reprieve. Our uncomfortability and pushback to reading about being asked to suffer exposes how much you probably aren't suffering. Understand, this is not a simple mental suffering though that may be a piece of this. This text is, contract, is, contra, is contrasted, sorry, let me get my words, with Paul's writing for the sake of physical suffering. These Christians are physically going through it in one way, shape, or form. It's very easy for us to have to think that this was so long ago and has nothing to do with us and where we're at right now, here in America, Tampa, Florida. This can seem very far-fetched, but as each week we've heard from different speakers, God is leading us and telling us that there is a way I'm asking you to live. It's not of this world, it's my kingdom. It's the spirit leading us to come into solidarity with Christ, not because God is sadomasochistic or crazy. It's because it's freedom. It is upside down. It gives life and life more abundantly. In essence, God is saying, it is me. God is asking us to dig deeper, see differently, See from the eyes of a brown-skinned former temple sex worker who was constantly being abused for relinquishing her high position by choosing to follow Jesus. He's asking us to see with the eyes of a family who denounced their household gods and idols and no longer are a part of the town's cult that worship at the entrance of the town. He wants us to see from the lens of a people who are in an era where they are seen as nothing more than the subjects to the will of Roman gods and emperor worship is a requirement. He wants us to enter in with our whole body, mind, and spirit and to continue in a way of suffering with the attitude of Christ. Understand, whether you admit it or not, or whether you consider that what you're going through suffering, it is happening all around us. Look at the trial of Botham Shemjean, the young black St. Lucian gentleman murdered in his own apartment in Texas by a white female police officer named Amber Greiger. And yet the sentence was only 10 years. Look at the faces of his family, his mother, the anguish for the loss of her son that no amount of time can bring true justice because he's gone. And even now, his next door neighbor, black Joshua Brown, who was just killed a day ago by an unknown assailant. Or the hundreds of indigenous children who died in Canada during the era of residential school system, also known as school scoop. Or Officer Sandeep Daliwal, the first openly Sikh officer who was murdered by the driver 
during a random police stop. You don't have to look around. You don't have to look far. Suffering is everywhere. But what determines how you handle suffering is your attitude. Think about it. To suffer with the attitude of Christ. That Jesus was put on trial, beaten, stripped, mutilated, dragged through the dirt with flesh hanging off, had vinegar poured on open skin, and yet and still not only said nothing, but even spoke forgiveness over the very ones who killed him. Most of us scream bloody murder when we get a paper cut. Or we want to call down fire and brimstone when someone's driving 40 miles per hour in the left lane. Let's be honest. Suffering with the attitude of Christ isn't easy. But it's not only possible, it's necessary and a gift. We should not be looking at this text with sad eyes. We should be looking at it in relief. It is God's strategy for freedom. This is not to diminish the reality of suffering or to give it a whitewashed veneer of light and love. No, it is to give purpose to your suffering and to place it where it should rightfully be, centered in Christ. See, in the passage we see that physical suffering is equated to the end of sin and how amazing it would be if that were true. But the translation actually speaks of renouncing sin, being done with it. Renouncing sin as to say, enough is enough. No longer do I willfully choose to do as I used to. Maya Angelou said, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Peter is simply reminding us to do better. See, because if, he, if it didn't mean, if it did mean that to suffer would mean the end of sin in totality, oh, if that were true, I'd be the first to testify about being sin-free and would wear it like a banner. Sure would. Why, you ask? Well, it's because of a genetic disorder that I have called sickle cell disease or sickle cell anemia. I won't get into the specifics, or, but the bottom line of it is that it causes extreme pain crisis, a.k.a. suffering. You all prayed for me last Sunday for this very reason. See, I was in Chicago at the Liberating Evangel Evangel oh my gosh, I can't speak, at the Liberating Evangelicalism Conference with a group from us from the Roots Project, shout out to y'all, and that Sunday, that very group was going to be leaving. I decided and planned that I was going to spend two more days there to hang out with my friend and coach, explore the city, meet up with friends, and get to the roots of my family's American legacy. But then it happened. Early around 12 a.m., that very Sunday morning, my body went into a crisis. And in less than an hour, it hit a full-blown pain crisis. My body writhing in pain betraying me almost instantly. Imagine, I can't lay still. I'm calculatedly moving 
and thinking and praying, waiting for my meds to kick in, but the crisis pain was beyond my hard knock prescriptions. My chest, too tender to touch because pain was radiating from it. It hurt to breathe. My back was throbbing, my shoulders aching, and even the simple act of sitting hurt. I needed an ER and quick. This may sound extreme to you, but this is my normal. Chronic, genetic, induced pain is my normal. Suffering is a part of my normal. But like Jesus, I have had to understand how to deal with it. And by no means does this mean that I'm done with sin. On the contrary, I am like Paul said, the chief of sinners. I can't stand when people don't signal in traffic. I can't stand when people are driving 40 miles per hour in the left lane. I still know how to catch an attitude. I argue with my husband. I judge people and the list goes on and on and on. But the one thing that I've learned from this passage and from having sickle cell is that Peter, like Peter, never insinuated for us to become martyrs. But to learn to shift our attitudes with which is, in essence, shifting our mindsets. See, I've been having sickle cell crisis since I was a baby. I was medically evacuated to the United States due to this genetic disorder. There is not one year of my life that passes where I do not have a crisis. I will literally be dealing with this condition for the rest of my life, or for the rest of my life, until I die or until Jesus comes back, whichever comes first. However, one thing I figured out from an early age operated out of is understanding how to deal with suffering. See, the gift that this genetic disorder gave me was the ability to learn to shift my thought process about suffering and know that my suffering has a purpose. My earthly suffering through a crisis is literally a strange reminder that I can't get malaria. Exactly. In Viktor Frankl's book, Man Searching for Meaning, he says, those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. So my question for you is, do you know your purpose or why for suffering? I proposed that Peter in this text is reminding us that to suffer as Christ is an act of resistance solidarity, and holy defiance. Because to those who have been in a place of constant suffering, they would gladly welcome a greater understanding to their suffering. God gives them the best gift and tells them that their suffering is not in vain, that like Jesus, it is purposeful. Just as Jesus going to the cross brought about salvation, redemption, reconciliation, and justification, their suffering and ours is the same. Just like my going through a sickle cell pain crisis has purpose, so does your suffering as Christ did. We have been shown over and over again, though we don't like to suffer, that it is inextricably linked to reigning with Christ. 
Paul reminds us that we must share in the suffering of Jesus in order to reign with him. And Peter is reminding these very Christians of these promises. He is reminding them that their suffering is purpose. Just as Jesus suffered and did it for the joy set before him. We need to come to a place of understanding that suffering with Christ is more than just crazy, it's more than some crazy notion, but as that you suffer, it refines. It is a tool used to make you more into the image of Christ. We do not revel in suffering as martyrdom. We embrace what already is as resistance. We embrace suffering as Jesus did with the joy set before us. We embrace suffering as purpose. The Christians in this current Roman Empire needed more to hang on to in their suffering, and this gave them purpose. Maybe you're asking yourself, or maybe you're asking for purpose as well to your suffering. And God is giving us an answer to encourage us and hold on. This gave them a different vantage point of their suffering, as it should for us as well. We as a body need a different vantage point, a mind shift for our suffering, and Jesus has given one to us. But we have to choose whether or not we're going to walk in this way. No. Those you are close to may not understand why you are the way you are. They may start insulting you and making fun of you because of this new vantage point, because of your new life. It is promised that they will heap insults on you. And each of you, in some way, shape, or form, have probably dealt with this already. Whether it be old friends, peers, coworkers, or even in your family. You no longer fit the mold, but God promises even in your suffering that if you choose to suffer with the same attitude that Jesus did, that they will have to give account for all that they do. Think about that. You choosing to live in a way that you suffer as Jesus does is an indictment on those who still live, who still choose to live according to the current culture. God is literally telling you that he sees everything, that those who come against you in some way, he will judge. Suffering as resistance births revolutionary love, a holy defiance. The Christians during this age became the very symbol of the upside-down kingdom. They became living stones of holy defiance. Their very being pushed against the status quo of the times. They were being asked to enter in the same holy defiance that Jesus lived. Donna Barber says in her book, Bread for Resistance. But we need to recognize that there is a record of protest throughout the scripture. And that standing for often involves standing against. Standing for the poor is standing against greed. Standing for the oppressed is standing against tyranny. Standing for love is standing against hate. Standing for righteousness is standing against evil. Jesus' entire life was an act of defiance. 
from the moment of his conception in the womb of a virgin to the day he stepped out of the borrowed tomb. Jesus pushed against custom and concept of law. In walking through Samaria rather than going around it, when talking with a woman at the well, by healing on the Sabbath, and when laying hands on lepers, he embodied what it means to defy. Jesus penned his protest sign in the dirt at the feet of an adulterous woman. He inspired men to climb trees so that they could see over the crowds. He disrupted many parties and vandalized the temple. He publicly called out religious leaders and challenged the young ruler who was part of the top 1%. He led a march in the, into the city from the back of a donkey. He led a die-in on the cross, on a hill. But his ultimate defiance was of hell and death itself when he rose with all power from the dead. In doing so, he freed us to live out lives of resistance. In fact, he commands it through his mandate of love. So we choose, so we too choose to live out lives of disruption. We resist, we oppose and we cry like our savior we dare to contest hatred and defy evil and in resurrection power we stand your suffering though hard is welcomed is a welcome way of life because we show this current backwards kingdom that there's more that there is a living God who sees and will vindicate. He will come with justice and right all the wrongs. He promises us that your suffering is not for nothing and that you will one day, as you stay faithful, will reign with Christ. Jesus promised it. You choosing to stand in solidarity, in suffering, is to push against the atrocities of this world and light and live. You standing in defiance because you choose to love, embrace each other, submit, and live in holiness is resistance to the, darkness, to the dark forces of this age. It is mimicking the life of Christ and shining a light that will never diminish. It is you being a light on a hill that will not be covered. But the choice is yours. Your attitude your mindset is what determines how you handle suffering. Jesus, even before his death, reminded us in John that you will go through it because he did. We are not exempt from this, and neither were the Christians who Peter was talking to in this letter. God uses all of it in order to push his kingdom forward. We must remember that the kingdom of God suffers violence but that the violent taketh by force. Your force is through walking in solidarity with Christ, becoming a steward of his grace unto your brothers and sisters. God is using your suffering as a light and a way to bring justice the day he returns and judges the living and the dead. You're choosing to love one another, to accept without retribution. The abuse that comes is God restoring Tovmiad on this earth. Lisa Sharon Harper in her book, The Very Good Gospel, explains that Tovmiad means very 
good, violently good, that it is a connection between us and all creation, between man and woman, humanity and earth, humanity and systems. For this we should understand that God's final plan is to reconcile all things unto himself through Christ. But if we choose not to shift our minds and our bodies and understand that suffering is not about, is not something to gripe about, push away, scorn, or be ashamed of, we negate our part of being a part of the redemption of this world. Our suffering will one day usher in the redemption of Christ. You being a physical symbol of holy defiance is the very thing God uses to draw others to himself. It is through his power that all men are drawn unto him. I love music a lot. And when prepping for this message, out of all the music that came to my mind, there was just one song. And the one song is called One Day by Mattis Yahoo. If you know it, judge me later. But the reason I love this song is because if you get to know me, as much as I am a straight shooter, I have a deep love for justice, womanism, anti-racism, and can't stand to see inequity, sexism, misogynoir, racism, and white supremacy, and I pray desperately for God to rectify all the world's ills, I'm an idealist. And I have this deep sense of immovable hope for better. And the reason why the song was so powerful for me is because the words literally say, Sometimes I lay under the moon and thank God I'm breathing. Then I pray, don't take me soon, because I know I'm here for a reason. Sometimes in my tears I drown, but I never let it get me down. So when negativity surrounds, I know someday it'll all turn around, because all my life I've been waiting for, I've been praying for, for the people to say, that we don't want to fight no more. There'll be no more wars and our children will play. One day, one day, one day. I'll invite the musicians up. Yes, this is very idealistic and even partially over the top. But to me, it's the vision I have. One day. God's glory will come bursting through the clouds and all will be made right. Until that day, I think about all the mothers and fathers who have lost children to either senseless violence or because of the lack of holistic care. Hashtag Botham Shem Jean and hashtag Joshua Brown. I think about all my friends who are choosing to not have children because of the suffering that we are in, and they do not want to bring another soul on this earth to experience it. I think about women who struggle to have children, and yet and still, black women suffer and die three times the rate due to childbirth. 
I think about all the black and brown fathers and men who are enslaved under the prison industrial complex. I think about those who suffer daily at the hands of systemic oppression because you were born a black, indigenous, or person of color. I think about the many wars that are ravaging the earth as we speak. I think about the Amazon and the destruction that has taken place. I think about Cameroon and the many who have died under the hands of a 37-year dictatorship. I think about those women who deal with numerous microaggressions and for black women who cannot separate whether it is because they are black or a woman. I think about my LGBTQIA friends who have to navigate repressive structures that do not want to recognize them, especially in the church, because of their sexual orientation. I think about all of those like myself with chronic disorders or those with mental health issues or those who deal with the ramifications of ancestral trauma, racial trauma, and how it doesn't end. I think about the orphan, the foreigner, the differently religious, the Sikhs, the Muslims, our Latinx family, internalized racism, broken marriages, abusive spouses, women sex workers, those who are addicted, suffer from anxiety, depression, Trump, my sister, and the list goes on and on and on. And I simply think about this song and say one day, one day this will all make sense and come to an end. Till then, my suffering is for a purpose and I welcome it with open arms. I welcome it like Christ welcomed, led like sheep to slaughter, but with full agency and awareness that God is presence. I remember Psalm 73 that says, truly, God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone, for I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. They wear pride like a jeweled necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty. These fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. They scoff and speak only evil. In their pride, they speak to crush others. They boast against the heavens and their words strut throughout the earth. And so people are dismayed and confused, drinking in all their words. What does God know, they ask. Does the Most High even know what's happening? Look at these wicked people enjoying a life at ease with their riches, while their riches multiply. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? 
I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. If I had really spoken this way to others, I would have been a traitor to your people. So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper, but what a difficult task it is. Then I went into your sanctuary, O oh God, and finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Truly, you put them on a slippery path and send them sliding over the cliff to destruction. In an instant, they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. When you arise, O oh Lord, you will laugh at their silly ideas as a person laughs at the dreams in the morning. And then I realized that my heart was bitter and I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you, yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Lead me to a glorious destiny. Whom am I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Those who desert him will perish, for you destroy those who abandon you. But as for me, how good it is to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter, and I will tell everyone about the wonderful things you do. I remember to not become bitter but to love my brothers and sisters with the fullness of who I am. I remember that my love towards them covers all their sins as theirs covers mine. I remember that there is purpose. My heart remembers and rejoices in affliction, one sickle cell crisis at a time. I remember that God sees and that justice is his and is best. I remember that judgment is real and his return is eminent and soon coming. I remember that to stay discerning and aware. I remember the power of prayer and the village. I remember that this is resistance, solidarity, a holy defiance. I remember that this is revolutionary love, that this is for you and for me. This is for the oppressed and the unseen. This is for the call to suffer without cause. This is for the exile and the overworked. This is good news. This is the centering of the minority. This is a push back against the ways of this world. This is Jesus. This is resistance. This is new and yet continued. This is blessed and wrapped in promise. This is not to pity yourself. This is a call to Christ, a clarion call. This is new life. This is the very good gospel. This is the doing better because you know better. This is love. This is defiance. This is holy. This is wholeness. This is to the outcast. This is inclusive. This is open. This is different. This is yes. This is life. This is Jesus and his authority. This is revolution. This is revolutionary. This is for the joy set before you. This is for you. This is for me. This is for us. This is for family. This is mosaic. This is shifting and surrender. This is everlasting change. This is why. This is how. This is real. This is now. This is bread for resistance. This is song. This is dance. This is joy. This is revolutionary love. This is holy defiance. This is one day.
all glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 4, where Paul writes, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body of the body the death, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed, so I spoke, we also believe. And so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise with us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. We do not lose hope. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And this is important for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond that which we see, beyond all comparison. As to not look at the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This week as I was talking with Filet and she was telling me about her, her adventure in the hospital, that's an appropriate word. Um, she says something interesting. She talks about how when she, she goes into the hospital, she's aware of how maybe sickle cell patients normally react or normally behave. And, and part of what she does in that place, knowing, yes, she is suffering physically and it's real, she's also aware that there will be an ending, that she will get out of this hospital. And the question that she asks herself is, how do I suffer in such a way uh, that I, I bear my afflictions lightly, that I glorify God even in this physical ailment? And, and as she was leaving, as she was leaving the hospital, she had this moment with the nurse, and, the, and they're talking, and the nurse is just saying, you know, you have been one of the best patients I've ever had. Like, there's something different about you, the way that you carry your suffering. And in that place, because Filet is, is, is suffering but still grinning it and, and bearing it with joy for the sake of Jesus, she's able to witness to this nurse about the hope of Jesus. And, and it turns out this, this nurse is a believer, and she's the, together. They, they're, they're sharing in the, the glory, the truth, the knowledge of God. And I just think, guys, that, that call to bear our afflictions well. Peter talks about at the, the end of all things is near, and the call is to pray. The call is to be alert. 
The call is to love each other deeply. And so we suffer, but we live as if we are not. We bear the same attitude of Christ in that on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body given for you, for your redemption. And in the same way, after dinner, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And when you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. He suffered, but bore us in mind, knowing that there was a purpose to his suffering. Some of you are suffering, and the call to you this morning is to endure, to remember that there is a purpose for your suffering, that God is at work. And for some of you, maybe you're not suffering. And maybe the call this morning is, is who are you willing to suffer for? And as you pray, as you allow the Lord to lead you, to meet you in that space, the body, the blood of Jesus given for you, Jesus, we remember your suffering. And we recognize that to say yes to you is to say yes to that same suffering on us. We want to be like you. We want to share in your suffering. We want to share in your resurrection. So Jesus, for those who are suffering, my prayer this morning is that you would meet them, that you would give them counsel and words, that your Holy Spirit would comfort them. And for those who recognize that they are not suffering, that they are disengaged from, from a people, Jesus, would you reassure them that your presence will be with them every step of the way as they say yes to your call on their life, Jesus. God, we take communion remembering your body and your blood. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. The body and the blood of Jesus given for you.